Good morning. Hear now the word of God from the book of Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all of the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, every man being the head of the house of his fathers. These are those who are listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every male able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. And now let us respond together. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Would you um, pray with me? Father, um, be with us in this time of um, hearing from you. Um, Soften our hearts. And may this be an occasion to move deeply into relationship with you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name's Ronnie. If you're new, um, we're so glad to have you. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, You have caught us in the middle of a sermon series where we're studying uh, the writings of Moses, specifically Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we're beginning this morning uh, in the book of Numbers. Now, everyone just calm down. I know you all have been waiting for this, this all, all year, right? Uh, all right, I'm kidding. But um, I'm kidding mostly because, if we're honest, not many of us even know what Numbers is all about. And that's tragic. Uh, do you know why that's tragic? Because the book of Numbers is about Jesus. It's true. You probably didn't see that coming. Numbers is about Jesus. In uh, in the New Testament, John chapter 1, he records the moment when Jesus was calling the very first disciples. He's gathering the 12, right? Uh, He finds Philip. He says, Philip, follow me. He does. Philip then finds Nathaniel. Guess what he says to him? In uh, John chapter 1, verse 45, he says, We have found him whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And so whenever they reference Moses, what they're talking about is the Torah, the Pentateuch, wherein you find numbers, right? He says the Torah is about Jesus. And that kind of thing like happens multiple times. That's not just a one-off deal. And so Jesus will end up citing numbers because he thinks it's super relevant. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul, is going to carry that forward. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is going to reference the, the events that we're going to read about in the book of Numbers, and he's going to cite all the people's like disobedience, and the, the disobedience that's described in all of these stories. And then what does he say? Paul says, those people put Christ to the test. All right, so... He said, that's to say, Israel's disobedience in the book of Numbers wasn't, about, wasn't against God in general. It was like against 
Christ. And so the New Testament authors think Jesus is the principal person in the book of Numbers. So the book of Numbers is about Jesus. Now let me, um, in this very first sermon in Numbers, get a little bit more specific with the context. I think it will be helpful. If you'll remember, uh, Israel, of course, is delivered out of the oppression of, and slavery of Egypt. God marched them right out of the Red Sea. They end up on the Sinai Peninsula. From there, God's pillar of smoke and fire is directing them, and it leads them all the way to the foot of Mount Sinai. That's where they receive the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. That's when they're instructed on how to set up a tabernacle so that God's presence could dwell with them and they not be incinerated, right? That's what we were learning about the last five weeks in Leviticus. And the people were there at the base of Mount Sinai for about a year when God says, all right, everyone, we're going to have a little road trip. Just uh, follow that pillar of smoke and fire wherever it leads. And where does it lead them? Does it lead them to the promised land? Oh, kind of. Not exactly. God takes the scenic route, right? Uh, on foot, it should have taken Israel two weeks to get to the promised land. It takes them 40 years. 40 years in the wilderness. And so what the book of Numbers is, it is Israel's travel log. For 40 years in the desert. Now we call this the book of Numbers because it comes, that title comes from the Greek version of the Old Testament. We call that the Septuagint, but that's not what the Hebrews call it. In the Jewish Bible, they call the book of Numbers in the desert. That's the title, in the desert. So this is all about Israel's wanderings in the desert. And spoiler alert, it's not pretty, y'all. It's not pretty. The wilderness, the, the desert, is a place where Israel's faith was tested. The wilderness is where Israel lived after their deliverance, after their salvation from Egypt, but before they received rest in the inheritance of the promised land. It's that in-between. And so the New Testament authors are going to look back at that wilderness and that desert time, and they're going to reference that as what it means to live as a Christian. That is the Christian life, a place where faith is tested. We're saved, we're saved, but we haven't yet received our full inheritance. And so we're in between these two places, and often, just like Israel, it's not that pretty. It's not that pretty. That's why Numbers is so relevant for modern Christians. Have you ever like been to church where they invite someone to give their testimony of faith, how they came to Christ? They come up and then they talk about it and then they characterize their life after Christ as being like filled with like spiritual victory and perfect transformation. And like you're listening to that testimony, it's perfect, and you're sinking in your seat in your chair being like, I think I'm a little out of place here. You're like, dang, like my life doesn't look that good. If you can relate to that, like numbers is for you. Numbers is for you. It's raw. It's real. 
Israel's in the wilderness. It's a wreck just like our lives a lot of times. So in Exodus and Leviticus, we saw like what I'll describe like the wedding service between how God and Israel got together. But now we're going to watch and read and learn about the first 40 years of marriage. It's not that pretty. So Israel's going to need a little marriage counseling, if you know what I mean, (laughs) right? That marriage was tested. So this morning, we're listening to the very beginning of the book of uh, Numbers. It's what we just heard, what Stephanie read for us. We're studying very specifically the prelude and the postlude of the census that was taken in Israel. So that's what we just heard. And that census is actually the occasion to explore uh, a kind of concept of life when you're living in the wilderness. So let's begin with my first point. I just have two points this morning. Here's my first. Forgetting the story. Forgetting the story. Have you, um, have you ever set out to like just do like a quick errand, and then when you get there, you find something else? It's kind of a mess, and it kind of derails you. So I um, went to my toolbox. I went to just retrieve a screwdriver so that I could install a little cover plate for the light switch, right? Super easy, right? I'm not Mr. Handyman, but I can do that. Uh, I opened it up, and my toolbox looked like, you know, those Crayola 128 packs? Like it was dumped out and everything was everywhere. That's what my toolbox looked like. So it bothered me. Uh, I took an hour to organize my toolbox, and then I ended up like, organizing my garage for two more hours, then I took a shower and I left, I still don't have a cover plate on my light switch, right? Like, what happened? Like, what happened there? Well, I forgot what I was there for. I forgot the big picture. That's what happens when you're in the wilderness, when life happens. We, we lose focus. The biggest and most dangerous temptation for Israel when they were in the wilderness was to forget the story. They forgot the plot of their lives. So they were saved from Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land, but they forgot the storyline when they were in the wilderness. And when we are in the desert, in those seasons of disappointment, suffering, exhaustion, we are tempted to lose the plot. Because it's hard for us to see outside of our disappointments and our exhaustion and our anxieties. And we're tempted to think that our exhaustion and our disappointments is all that there is, you see. And when that happens, the desolation and the wasteland of the desert that's out there begins to invade our hearts. And the dry desert moves in. And you look inside your heart, and it's a desert. It's dry. So in some ways, the story of Numbers is a story of self-destructive behaviors in Israel provoked by the wasteland, by the desert, by the wilderness. So what is it about the wilderness that makes it especially hard to remember the story? The fact that Israel was not given a timeline makes life in the wilderness completely inefficient. And that's what I want you to hear. It becomes inefficient. I mean, can you just like imagine the context of Israel for me? Maybe I could put it to you like this. Uh, You guys know what Woodstock is? Do y'all remember Woodstock? 
1969, this guy named Max Yazgur allowed his 600-acre farm in New York State to be used for a music festival, a gorgeous farm. They expected 25,000 people. Turns out 400,000 people descended upon this farm to hear performers like Janis Joplin, Grateful Dead. Uh, So Woodstock lasted four days. Now think about this for me for a second. 400,000 people, four days, virtually no bathrooms, no Walmarts. There are literally, you can guys Google this, there are before and after pictures of Max Yazger's farm. The farm was decimated. And this only lasted four days. The people were like locusts, but locusts who use the bathroom everywhere. You know what I mean? Totally gross. Now think about Israel. They escaped from Egypt. They had very little, a little bit of gold in one hand and a child, small child in the other hand. Uh, and then in verse 46 of our census, uh, uh, in our text, the census reports that there were over 600,000 men over the age of 20. And those are just the fighting men, right? This means that there were upwards of 2 million Israelites roaming through the desert. And we're not talking about four days. At this point, they have just finished one year at Mount Sinai. And guess what? They've got no timeline I mean, they have no idea how long this is going to last. God didn't tell them up front that it was going to be a 40-year ordeal. And that's actually the second second part, point of reference, right? The trip to the promised land should only take two weeks, but they're not commanded to go straight there. They're commanded to follow this pillar of smoke and fire. And that column is not taking them on the most efficient route. It's like a tragic detour. Now, if there's anything that we hate in Western society, it's inefficiency. Where I come from in Puerto Rico, they don't mind it as much. They're chill with it. Here, it drives us nuts. Inefficiency is actually tantamount to sin. I always say to my wife, I say, baby, when you're done brushing your teeth, don't put your toothbrush beside the sink. Put it straight into the toothbrush holder, right? You're you're just adding a step, honey. I want you to be efficient. It's all cute and funny until you're marching through the desert with eight kids, no diapers, and no clue when you're going to get a drink of water. My kids can barely make it in an air-conditioned suburban on their way to Golden. You know what I mean? So here's the point. The New Testament says that the Christian life is life in the wilderness. Think about it. We were rescued. We're saved by Jesus. But we haven't arrived to our home with God. We're en route, right? And that path, that route is littered with suffering and sadness. And we're tempted to forget the storyline. I mean, think about it like this. When you're going through a really hard time, well, what's the question you're, you're tempted to ask God? What, what do we ask? We say, why? Why, God, is this happening? Suffering is so inefficient. I mean, why doesn't God just save us and just take us straight home? I mean, he could. Why the long, sad route? He could take us straight home. I mean, he's God. He could. Suffering and disappointment 
tempts us to get cynical and forget the story. It's inefficient. And we don't even know if it's ever going to end. But listen, you guys, this wilderness is your life. And the wilderness in your life, if you're not careful, will become a spiritual wilderness in your heart. If we, when you respond to those questions with pat answers, don't give pat answers, right? Religious people, when they're going through hard times, religious people will say what? They'll say, well, maybe God's just punishing me. And then, and then in secular people, right, they'll say, there is no purpose to suffering. It's all random. It's, just, it's actually just the corruption of society or something, right? Both of those responses are attempts to domesticate God and to make him controllable, make him understandable. But if you settle for those superficial answers, then cynicism will be birthed. And the desolation of the wilderness will start breaking in. Don't forget the story. God's trajectory of your soul. Don't forget that trajectory. The wilderness is a mysterious place of testing. And it's your life. And it forces you, right? Like when you're going through those hard times, it forces you to, to, to surrender and examine your foundations. Like, like what are you about? And what is your life about. See, the wilderness begins to take away those things that were your foundation, right? Your health, your money, your career, your children, your degree, right? In the wilderness, all those things are getting attacked. Many of them are even being taken away, and that becomes the, the occasion of your disappointment. And the wilderness is exposing that. And it gives us this occasion to move our foundations squarely on God. And if you don't, you will become angry with God. And your sadness will actually become inescapable. You might not bounce back. That's the evidence that you forgot the plot. And that the wilderness broke in and invaded your heart. Although there is no timeline in the wilderness, the Lord is inviting us to listen real carefully. The Lord is inviting us to see that the good and the hard rest in the same place. Do you hear what I said? The good and the hard, they reside in the same space. Embrace it. Parents, teach your children that. Instead of turning cynical, we stay committed to a relationship with God, a relationship that we do not control. Follow him wherever he takes us and let him be your foundation, you see. All right, let me, let me make a pivot. So, so if Israel and ours primary temptation in the wilderness is to forget the story, that's the first point, then what resources do we have to remember the story? And that's going to be our second point. Now, to answer that question, we need to think about what a census, Numbers chapter 1, communicates. So in verse 2, the Lord commanded Israel to take a census. Now think about this. Have you ever been part of like a youth, tri uh, like a youth trip, but as a chaperone? 
Uh, so like in sixth grade, my elementary school took a group of students to Washington, D.C., and the logistics are a little bit crazy with like 50 unruly kids and eight adults, right? And so the group would go from location to location or museum to museum, and every time the students got off the bus, and then they got on the bus, but every time they returned to the bus, what did the chaperones do? They counted heads. They counted students. If the trip started with 50 students, it's really important that it ends with 50 students. If you get a 98% success rate, something went wrong. It's not okay. So counting students, counting is an act of love, isn't it? It's an act of love. You see that? Practical, it's an act of love. Well, in the case of the census, when God told Moses to count the people, you know what he's saying? He's saying, count on my faithfulness. How so? We're in the desert. The people don't have plumbing or diapers, but you know what they do have? They have God's promises. So Numbers chapter 1 stands in contrast to Exodus chapter 1. Let me quickly summarize the history so you can see this contrast. So back in Genesis 12, God makes a promise with Abraham. So Abraham's like this old man. His wife, Sarah, is infertile, can't have babies. But God says, I'm going to actually make you into this amazing, great nation. I'm going to give you so many grandbabies, it's going to be like sand on the seashore. So Genesis ends with 12 great grandsons. And you know the story. These 12 families moved to Egypt because of a drought. And Exodus 1 begins by telling us that these 12 families, maybe a few hundred people, constitute the entirety of Israel. Israel's 12 families. Over the course of 400 hard years in Egypt, they experience incredible growth. And God says, count them. 603,550 men, which represents over 2 million people when you include women, children, and the elderly. Like, What is happening here? God made a promise, and he said, go and count them and see how I fulfill my promises. Counting numbers is God's way of making them rehearse his faithfulness. To remember the storyline in the wilderness, they had to remember his promises. And there's another promise, right? What was the other one? It was the land. Now, they haven't received the land yet, but they knew the land of rest was on the horizon. So remember, the story, it's going somewhere, right? It's going somewhere. Because God was faithful to his promise to Abraham, Israel could have confidence that he would be faithful to his promise, the one that isn't fully realized yet, that isn't fully fulfilled. So they're living between the promise and the fulfillment, right? Does that make sense? You're following this? They have God's promises, but they have one more thing. They have his presence. In verse 1 it says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. And so Israel, I'm not sure if y'all know this, but when they camped out, they camped in a very specific way. The tents were always arranged in reference to the tabernacle so that they never forgot who guides them. Now think about this. 
All the boundaries of the universe can't even contain God, and yet in some particular and mysterious way, there he is dwelling with his people. So God gives them his promises, but he also gives his people himself, his presence. And this is going to get even more important later as we study numbers, but especially as we're going to see Israel blow it and grumble and betray God. Even still, what we're going to see is God say, I'm not leaving you. I'm here. I'm with you. When you're, when you're grumpy, when you're doubting, when you're unfaithful, I'm not leaving. I am sticking with my people. And that's the kind of enchanting love that wakes people up out of these spells, kind of brings them back home, right? God's, God's not a pushover, but oh, his love is fierce. It's unbreakable. God, God's not just waiting for them at the banquet. He's in the wilderness with his people. He doesn't just send us off to be tested. He, he accompanies us. He, he never abandons us. The merciful love enchants our hearts and it helps us to remember the plot line, where we're going. It's so important, Denver, that you understand this part of who God is. God's promises and his presence are the most powerful resources we have. And who would have thought that a census? Maybe a few accountants were like, I see God's love in that. But it's a census that reminds us of that. In the New Testament, Jesus, he doesn't just count us. You know what he does? He counts every hair on your head. And he counts every hair on your children's head. His care is so extravagant. And his presence is even more powerful. And his presence dwells in us by his spirit. And then our bodies become these living tabernacles. Listen, I, I know that your mind is like hearing me right now, but your heart will forget these words in the desert. Why? Because the wilderness is a battlefield, man. It's significant that in this census, in verse 45, it tells us to count every man who is able to go to war organized by families. Like, I, I know it's not, like, politically cool to talk about war, but listen to me. Israel is going to the promised land, and that land is amazing, but it's not vacant. Rough people live there who want to take Israelite babies and sacrifice them to their gods. Like Israel would love to arrive to the promised land and be welcomed by people who say, man, we've heard awesome stories about your God and the wonders of your God. Your God shall be our God. Your people shall be our people. Like, in fact, we actually do see that on a few occasions. I mean, because no one ever wakes up just wanting to go to war, but it was a reality because evil is real. But what is significant here is that the military divisions were organized by families. When you and I, if we have to fight, we fight next to our brothers. And we fight next to our sisters. You see the analogy? Life in the wilderness is a battle. It's a grind. 
and you're, you're going to get wounded and you're going to get tricked and you're going to get seduced and you're going to blow it. You're going to get weary. But if you fight alongside your brothers, if you fight alongside your sisters, there will always be someone there watching your back. Someone who's there to bandage up your wounds because they love you. That's why church isn't this cute extra thing into our spiritual lives. Like it's vital that we do this life together. And then when, when, you're, when your brother or sister gets hurt, then, then you're the one who's doing the bandaging and speaking words of encouragement, even when, the, when their enemy surrounds. Friends in battle will remind you why we got into this war in the first place. They'll remind you of the storyline. They'll remind you of the plot. See how that works. Let me, let me conclude this sermon by just... Um, summarizing what I've said so far. So Numbers, it's a travel log for Israel when they were wandering in the desert. And the desert in the New Testament is looked as a season of life that, that, that describes a period, well, in its original sense, a, that period when they were saved out of Egypt, but before they got their full inheritance. And so the New Testament authors are going to say, that's like the Christian life in the desert. After being saved, but before our full inheritance. And in the desert, our biggest temptation is to lose the plot, to forget why we're here and where we're going. We forget primarily in our estimation because suffering is inefficient and because God has not given, given us any flow chart or timeline. And that's hard. It's hard to keep walking when you don't know when it's going to end. And so we grow cynical. But at the same time, then God gives us a few resources to help us remember the story. He gives us his promises and he gives us his presence. And when we fight for survival, we do so alongside our brothers and our sisters. Now, I began this, this sermon telling you that Numbers is about Jesus. It is. It is. The Gospel of Mark is going to make this explicit. Listen to this really carefully. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Mark, it opens and begins with Jesus passing through the baptismal waters of the Jordan. Just like Israel passed through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea. And then what happens? And Jesus goes where? He goes to the desert. For how long? For 40 days. Just like Israel was in the desert. For 40 years. Israel got water and manna and they still complained. Jesus got nothing, no water, no food, and he did not complain. He was perfectly faithful to God. He never grumbled. He never doubted God. Why is this so significant? Because where you blew it, where I blew it, where our children blew it, Jesus did not. He never forgot the plot. He knew the trajectory of his life, and he joyfully was committed to it. And Jesus takes our rebellion, and he is put to death in the wilderness. Do you believe this? Do you believe that this is what God's doing 
It's so beautiful that our hearts struggle to believe it. It's all true. Listen to me, Denver Prez. It's all true. Jesus really did that for you. And he can really walk with you in this wilderness. If you will believe this, and not just let this be another sermon, if you will believe this, it will change your life. Let's believe it together. Let's believe it together. It's, I love how we get to come to a table. The way I think about this is um, we're all in 